Okay, guys, we're going to get started uh, in about a minute, so make your way to your seat. We're going to get started in about a minute. We're going to get started in about a minute. Okay. All right, go ahead and grab your, way, uh, grab your seat. We're going to get started right now. It is really neat to be together this morning, as always. And uh, I know that uh, next week is Mother's Day, which is a very important uh, day of the year for all of us to honor our moms and to make sure we love them and take good care of them. But uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, uh, so we're going to focus now on the sermon and the message at hand and the rest of our time that we have here today. I'm not going to go long. It'll be, uh, I don't know, 30 minutes or so, I, I think. And, uh, and we'll be done. But I do think today is very important in the time we spend together. Every time we come together on Sunday is very important. I want to thank uh, the worship team for leading us in the singing and in the worship segment. That was very powerful, and I really appreciated that. Also appreciate Dean and leading us in the communion thoughts and did such a great job. Thank you for that. Very uh, helped uh, bring it home. And that's, that's what it's all about. We always want to keep trying to bring it home, right? We want we want this time to be relevant to all of us. That's, that's really what it's about because we want to get connected to God. Yeah, there's going to be some teaching and yeah, there's going to be some preaching and yeah, there's going to be some, maybe even some challenging. But, but really what this is about is for us just getting our time in with God and connecting with God. Not like, not punching a time clock, but, but connecting in a way that stays with us uh, through the rest of the week. Amen? I don't know about you, but I know I need that. And I'm assuming that uh, all of us could benefit from it. So we are in our series, Jesus Worth Following, and we're going through the book of Mark, following him through the book of Mark. And I heard the story of this elderly woman. And uh, she was out in the evening, and she was at church service uh, one evening for quite some time. And after the service was over, she went home. And uh, she opened up her front door, and the lights were out, of course, and, and it was dark. But she, she realized there was an intruder in the house. So in the darkness, she could see a shadowy figure and, 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 and realized, put two and two together, that her house was being robbed. And, and she didn't know what to do in that moment, so she just yelled out, Acts chapter 2, 38, which says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And there was a moment of silence, and the figure froze. She couldn't make him out, but... But she could tell that it was a person, and it was a man, and he just stayed there frozen. And so, so after a few seconds, she, she shuffled her way along the wall. She got to the phone, and she called the police, 911. She said, uh, there's an intruder. And within a few minutes, the police showed up. And the whole time in the darkness, that figure just stood there frozen. The police came in, turned on the lights. Of course, there was the thief, the burglar. They arrested him. The woman sat down with the officers, explained everything that had happened. And when the officer took the thief out to head him, take him to the back of the squad car, the intruder, he said to him, you know, I, I don't understand. Why didn't you run? I mean, after all, the woman just yelled scripture at you. And the, the, the burglar, the intruder said, scripture? 
I could have swore she said I have an axe and two thirty-eights. Sometimes God's word has a way of stopping us in our tracks. I hope that happens for you today. I hope it happens for me today. We're going to pray and then we're going to turn to Mark chapter 3. Father, we are so grateful to be together and thank you for this time. I pray speak through me, to me, and to everyone here from your word that we can be brought closer to you and follow you, your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7. Of course, on the screen, we have our map of Palestine. It's the one we've been using all series long. It gives us just a, an overview of the area. Uh, because we are following Jesus through the book of Mark, so we're trying to get an idea of where he goes and what happens when he was there. But we're going to start in verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a crowd, a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all about he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Now, last week, we concluded a section in the, in the Gospel of Mark of, of five encounters that Jesus had with religious leaders. And, and it concluded with those religious leaders leaving his presence and deciding to kill him. And so the rest of the book of Mark kind of takes place under this cloud, uh, and, and of Jesus' ministry takes place under this cloud of potential violence, of, of, of a threat. It's no wonder that in verse 7, Jesus withdrew. It was time to sort of get out of the public eye for a period of time. I don't know how long he had withdrawn, but it was some time. And I know it was some time because the Bible tells us that people, a crowd, actually followed him to where he withdrew. Now, he withdrew to a lake, and that lake is the Sea of Galilee. It's also called Lake Gesenere in the scriptures. But so that's where we are. We're up in Galilee, up near the Sea of Galilee, somewhere in a, in a secluded area near the sea. That's where Jesus went probably because of the threat, trying to get out of the public eye for a period of time. And as he went, crowds heard about this, and they followed him. Now, these crowds came not only from the towns around the Sea of Galilee, as you can see there on the map, but literally from all over the province or the region of Galilee. But not only did crowds come from there, they also came from all the way down here in Judea, down here near the Dead Sea, some 70 even to 100 miles away, near the city of Jerusalem, some of them, they traveled because to, go, to go be with Jesus, to withdraw with him, not only from Judea, but also from the areas across the Jordan, that's this uh, on the right side of the map, Perea and the Decapolis, but not only did people come from there, they also came from down south of Judea, it's not on the map, but an area called Idumea, and not only from there, but all the way up on the top left corner, even, if, even somewhat off the map, from the area of Tyre and Sidon, people came from all over Palestine to go be with Jesus as he withdrew, tried to get out of the public eye, tried to, tried to cool things down for a time in his ministry. You know, it's pretty, pretty interesting when you think about it, but Jesus, in, in, during his ministry, certainly in the first two-thirds of his ministry, was very popular. His, his, uh, no, his name, his message, you know, uh, uh, his reputation had spread far and wide in this area. Now, we're not saying it was global. I don't know what was going on in California at this time. But in this area here, an area of about 100 miles 
long by about 70 or so, 75 miles wide, Jesus had gained quite a reputation right there at the hub in, 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 uh, of the Jewish uh, community. And so as a result, many, many people came over uh, to follow him. And, and the Bible describes it as a crowd of people. Now, crowds are are funny thing. Because crowds have no brain. But they do act. They can be thrilled one moment. They can be furious the next. People in crowds often suspend good judgment and do things that they would not normally do. Crowds have been known to stampede, to trample, destroy, and to even kill other people. You know, it's important that we, we pause for a minute and realize something, that the crowds followed Jesus, but Jesus didn't follow the crowd. And, and, and so what I think we need to pause and think about this for a minute is because Jesus was not a populist. It wasn't, hey, whatever the flavor of the day is, let's go talk about that because I'm trying to drum up support. That's not what Jesus did. Although some of his message, a lot of his message did resonate and become popular, he wasn't a populist. Jesus wasn't a political activist. He wasn't trying to start another political party or movement in Palestine at the time. Although some of what he said did have implications and ramifications in the politics of the day. Jesus was not a revolutionary. He was not looking to get an army and to go out into the woods and train them and then start blowing up train stations or, or public facilities. Although some of his teachings were revolutionary. Some of them got him in trouble with even the religious, religious leaders of his day. You know, here, here's one. Jesus wasn't even a social warrior. Or what do they call it? Social justice warrior? That's not what he was. Although a lot of his message carried a, a social justice theme. There was justice in his, in his teachings. He wasn't a social justice warrior. He didn't follow the crowd. The crowd came to him. So what was Jesus? What was he? And if we want to categorize him, if we want to put him in some sort of box and try to understand, well, what was he? Well, all we need to do is go back to the beginning of Mark. We've already talked about what he was in one of our earlier messages. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What was Jesus? He was a preacher of good news and of repentance. Whenever we spend time preaching Jesus to other people, telling other people about Jesus, calling other people to repent, calling them out of their sinful ways... We are following Jesus. We are walking in the very footsteps of him whenever we do those kinds of things. And we got to be careful that we don't get sidetracked into social issues, into political issues, into revolutionary issues, into populist issues. Those were not what Jesus was about. 
They may have stolen things from him. There may be some overlap. He may borrow from them. But at the end of the day, what was Jesus? He was a preacher of the good news. The good news wasn't a political message. It wasn't a social message. The good news was a spiritual message. It meant that, that the, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings has come. Jesus, the Savior of the world, is now present on earth. And when you were near him, you were near the kingdom of God. And so Jesus was a preacher of good news and, and we can't forget this, repentance. And there's a, there's a point here for us to walk away with, which is we, it's easy to talk about the good news of Jesus. In most cases, people are fairly receptive to it. People are willing to at least hear you out. But when you cross the line and you start to talk about repentance, now you're dealing with a whole nother thing. And we can't divorce Jesus being a preacher of the good news from Jesus being a preacher of repentance. And neither should we. And, and, so, and so when we try to follow him, we try to walk in his footsteps, we got to be willing to say both. We got to be willing to communicate both messages, the good news and the news of repentance. And when we do, we get to be like Jesus. That's following him. That's what it looks like. Verse 9. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Now, the need for the small boat. Uh, well, I, I can relate to this. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I, for our anniversary, went to France. One, best trip of my life. Had so much fun. And uh, while we were there, we went to the Louvre. And when you go to the Louvre, uh, the first thing everybody does, most visited museum in the world, there's literally tens of thousands of people there, you know, end up there. And when you go there, the first thing everything, everybody does, the most people, is they run straight for the Mona Lisa. And so there's this sea of people running down the corridors and the hallways, and it's all going to the Mona Lisa. And, and the room is maybe, maybe this size, maybe a little bigger, where the Mona Lisa is, and, and it's behind glass, and there's a little barricade around it. It's not a very big picture, if you've ever seen it. It's literally like about this big. And, uh, and, and people just start pouring into that room. And it's, it's like, you know, a Rolling Stones concert, right? It's the festival seating. Everybody starts to get squished and more people keep coming in and, and it's just people pushing and squeezing and pushing. And it's, you know, if you were a little kid, it might be a little unsafe. If you were a smaller person, it could get unsafe because the, just the, the humanity going into that room and shoving in, shoving in, trying to get to the picture. Fortunately, I, I was there and there were a lot of Asian tourists. And so I was bigger than just about everybody else in the room. <laughs> And that worked to my advantage on that day. I was safe. But this is what was going on with Jesus. They wanted to get up. They wanted to touch him because he was a, a miracle worker. He, he, he was healing people. He was, he was doing things like that. And so they wanted to get close to him. So Jesus needed a boat for his own, his own safety, his own protection, maybe even for the protection of the disciples. And, and, and to create some sort of order, they couldn't just press up against him. So he got into a boat. And the Bible says that he had healed many. You know, imagine that in our day and age. If someone had this miraculous, genuine, not fake, just imagine it, a miraculous ability to heal. Can you imagine the crowds of people that would want to touch or be or see or, see or hear that person? 
that would press to get there. The world is a sick place. People are sick people. They're in need of healing. And it was true then and it's true today. People are just as, as infirm, as, 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 as in need as they were then. They are just as in need today. And what an incredible grace it must have been, a mercy of God to, to be able to go and see Jesus and be touched and to be healed. Like, you know, just like that. It must have been incredible. And so you can see here there's this, there's this just uh, throng of people and, and this, this energy that's just crowding up against them, this crowd of people, and they're trying to get up close to him. And then something funny the Bible says here. It says that whenever impure spirits would come up, they would cry out, you are the Son of God. Now, we've already talked about this in a previous message, so I'm not going to get into the whole conversation about demon possession. But, but suffice to say, Jesus was able to heal people both physically and spiritually, and people came to him with multiple problems. Some were physical, some were spiritual, and some were both. And Jesus had the ability to remove, to cast out or to exercise those evil spirits, those impure spirits. And so in this crowd of people who were physically sick or physically in need, there were also those who were spiritually in need. And whenever they came up, the spirit that was within them, the evil spirit, the impure spirit, would cry out, you are the son of God. Now that title is a very interesting title, and I want to spend a minute and talk about it. Because... Some people read this passage and they, and they imply or they, they read in this that this was a, a, a failed, a futile, a, a weak attempt by those evil spirits, those impure spirits, to try to get some sort of control over Jesus. Think about a parent when he's mad, when they're mad at their children. What do they say? They say their whole name. Hunter Norman, my, my son, or Kelly Mason, or Sophia Carmella, those are my kids. When we're really mad, we say their whole name. And some people read in that that's what's going on here is the demon is somehow trying to like be authoritative. Son of God, as if, as if he's going to try to, you know, wrestle Jesus down a little bit. Obviously, if that was the case, we don't know. But if it was, it was a failed attempt. It didn't work. But, you know, the title Son of God was, was a common title. It wasn't unfamiliar in Jesus' day. In fact, in the ancient world, kings referred to themselves as the Son of God. Pharaohs, emperors took the title. Even in Jewish scripture, the title was used. And I want to look at a couple of those. Genesis chapter 6. When human beings began to increase in number on, on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. There's that phrase, sons of God. Curious phrase. What does it mean? Well, if you read this whole passage in context, I think it's pretty safe to say that that phrase, sons of God, is referring to people, not angels, but people who are especially close to God. Followers of God. They're like sons of God. And in context, it's pretty clear. There's no mention of angels. There's no description that angels are somehow coming down and having relationships with, with, human, with humans. It's just, it's, 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 it's biblically incoherent for that to have happened anyways, if you, if you take the whole Bible together. So it's pretty safe to say that in this phrase, it's referring to people who had a unique relationship with God. And this was a problem because the, the followers of God, the sons of God, were, were marrying with uh, uh, people who were not following God. And that was creating a problem for their children because you had two competing worldviews going on in the home. And there were, there were dire consequences that affected all of society after a while, that the, this, uh, this influx of, of uh, uh, non-followers 
with the followers of God. This mixing didn't go well. But the point is, this phrase, sons of God, refers to people who are especially close to God. But here it is again in Job chapter 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now this word angels in the Hebrew is ben Elohim, which means son of God. And so here we have an actual description of angels being called sons of God. And so angels, not only men, but angels were referred to as sons of God. And we know that because Satan is an angel and he was with them. And this was a scene that was happening in heaven before Job went through all of his trials and suffering. So, so the phrase sons of God can be applied to kings or pharaohs, or had been anyways, and to emperors. It had also been used in scripture to refer to people who were close to God. It, it, it's been used in scripture to refer to angels. Exodus chapter 4, 22, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt called my son. Here he's referring to the entire nation of Israel, the Jewish people. They were called sons of God. And so here's this phrase again being used to describe uh, people, this time in, in, in a group. Now, the question is, when the demons use the phrase son of God, how did they mean it? What, what did they mean by that? I mean, yeah, maybe they were trying to get some sort of control over Jesus, trying to be authoritative, but they still use the phrase, and how did they mean it? Well, I think Mark, again, if we go back to an earlier message and we look at Mark chapter 1, we're going to get an answer to that. Mark chapter 1, verse 11, And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is what was a voice that spoke from heaven, God the Father, spoke at Jesus' baptism. So in this context, Mark described Jesus not as a son of God, but as the son of God. Capital son of God. In other words, the literal son of God. And I believe that that is also how the demons use the term. They understood him as who he really was. Now, maybe they were trying to make some sort of naive attempt to, to, to have some sort of authority or control over him. But nonetheless, they were referring to him as the literal son of God. Now, I want to pause for a second because I want to make a point. The Bible is nothing if it's not historical. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that all of these scriptures we read, and when you look on your phone app or you read your Bible uh, analog style, what you're reading are historical documents. It's as if people, archaeologists, uncovered some tablets and dusted them off and translated them and realized, wow, here's a, here's a document from the 5th century B.C. that describes the reign of some king or, or the events of some a country or some battle that occurred. It's as if that actually it is exactly that. The scriptures are historical. They were documents that were recorded during the time of the events, and they've been preserved. Now, in all, to our benefit, they weren't lost in a cave somewhere for thousands of years and then discovered. They've been ever-present with us. And sometimes I think that causes us to forget the relevance or the historicity of the scriptures because they've sort of always been there and there's a danger in that because i think sometimes we begin to think of these things as folklore or as myths 
But really, these are actual historical records. It would be no different if we went down to the Library of Congress and cracked open the books to read all about uh, you know, George Washington's presidency and all the documents that were collected and, and written about him and stored in the library, right? They're real events. These are, these are verified, and, and not only are they real, but they can be tested, and they can be approved. And the Bible has been, time and time again. The, 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 the scriptures we read ha- are reliable, and they're historically uh, genuine. And so, and so you can trust them. And so when we read them, especially the Gospels, what we're reading is eyewitness accounts of interactions, of, 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 of uh, situations that, that, that eyewitnesses saw Jesus in. Or they, and some of them physically were the ones that wrote their stories down that got, trans, that got passed on over time. And others were dictated to other people like the Gospel of Mark. Probably it was Peter that was telling Mark the stories and he was writing them down. But the point I'm trying to make is these are real world events. They actually did happen. In other words, people did crowd up against Jesus. People were healed when he touched them. He did teach messages that put fear into people. Demons uh, uh, possessed people. When they came in, the demon would scream and come out. And they would cry out, we know who you are, son of God. They really did say those things. They really did happen. These are not myths. Peter, one of Jesus' followers later, wrote, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. When you read the New Testament again and again, they say you've got to trust what we're telling you because we are witnesses. We are firsthand testifiers. We saw these things. They were not done in a vacuum. Which means that there were other witnesses even people who weren't followers, even people who didn't become followers later. And the interesting thing is, is they don't deny these occurrences. If I came to you and said, hey, I was in France two years ago, and I went into the, the Louvre to go see the Mona Lisa, and I walked into the room, and it was packed with people, and I whipped out my, my walking stick, and I hit the ground, and the people parted. And I levitated through the room. And I got to stand in front of the Mona Lisa, and she winked at me. There would be about 100 and 300 people who could verify or deny if that ever happened. The same is true with the scriptures. These things did not happen outside, out of the sight of other people. They happened front and center, right in front of crowds and crowds of people. People from all over Palestine at the time. Even visitors who traveled to Palestine from other places. And there's no record. There's no evidence of anybody denying what, they, what happened. Even his enemies, who we read about in the last few Sundays, who we learned about, they didn't deny what he was doing and saying. They just didn't like it. We even have external evidence. In other words, there are other writings that aren't biblical, maybe from Roman uh, citizens or Roman uh, uh, officials who kept records. And they talk about the Christians. And in their writings, they verify many of the same stories. The point I'm trying to tell you is that the Bible is nothing if it's not historical and if it's not reliable. And so when when Mark tells us 
He was the literal son of God. And when demons repeat that phrase, you are the son of God, we can actually trust it. We can actually believe it. And we can actually know that the son of God, the literal son of God did become a man and did walk this earth some 2000 years ago. It is not a cleverly invented story. It's believable. It's verifiable. The evidence can be can be put together and, and compiled in such a way that it becomes undeniable to the person who's really, really interested in wanting to know the truth. Of course, you know, we can argue anything. But only those who really want to know, who are really, really willing to take an honest look at the evidence, they're going to admit, hey, it's pretty solid. It's pretty rock solid. These things happen. They happen the way they said they happen. He was who he said he was. He was who other people said he was. He was even who the demon said he was. And he really did walk this earth. But here we get to the interesting part in the, in the passage to me. Verse 12. But he gave them, talking about the impure spirits, strict orders not to tell others about him. Now that just seems funny to me. Why would Jesus tell these impure spirits to keep their mouth shut? Why would he not want them to go around and tell other people what happened? Or I don't know how they do that. Maybe they spread it in the, the spiritual realm. I don't, I don't know how that works. But why? And, and he did this with people, by the way, too. Sometimes he, he would take, heal someone or do something with someone, and then he, and he would say, hey, don't tell anybody. We looked at that before in one of our previous chapters, and, of course, nobody listened, and they would run off and tell everybody. And, and we know that one of the reasons why he was trying to keep people quiet at least in the first part of his ministry, was because every time the word got out, so many crowds would come, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't teach, he couldn't really get involved with people because he was just overwhelmed by the crowds. Like we see in this passage, where he had to literally get in a boat because of the crowds. So, so there's certainly, uh, in, this, in this passage, and I, the idea that it wasn't time. Jesus was stopping demons, he was stopping impure spirits and people, from telling others about him and what he had done for them because he, it wasn't time yet. He kept trying to keep it, keep it on the down low early on. Even though these things did happen in front of many tens, even hundreds of people, even thousands, overall he was trying to keep it on the down low because it wasn't time. And, and you know, he had a timeline. He had a time frame he was working with. And if, and if, and if, if, if he just ignored the timeline, the crowds would just overwhelm and, and who knows how the story would have turned out. So I think that's a safe bet. But, you know, there's another point that I think can be made. And this is just my opinion. This is, this is something I read when I see this passage. Jesus didn't want his message, his method, to be told by demons or by crowds. Because they're both really unreliable. Right? I mean, they're terrible sources. Demons, of course, they're impure and have bad motives, and crowds are just brainless, right? I mean, they just react. And so, I, and I, I'm with him. I, I don't want the, the, the populace to take over the message because it gets corrupted. And, and we see that in our day and age. The message of Christ has been corrupted again and again throughout history and is happening in our day and age. It's being bent, it's being tweaked, it's being shaped, it's, being, it's trying to conform to what people already want it to mean. And so it's being applied in every possible way, from slavery to same-sex marriage to, to any other kind of 
uh, 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 social issue that you see on hand. People are trying to twist it to make it fit their story. And that's what the crowds do, and that's what evil spirits do. They, 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 they mess with the message, and even the method sometimes. So I, I, I think Jesus didn't want it to be spread that way. So how did Jesus want it to be spread? By people. By individual people. By, by people like you and me. It's no wonder that right after this, this account in the Gospel of Mark, when you read... The very next account, we're going to talk about it in two weeks, is the choosing of the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles, the word apostle means messenger. It was at this point in his ministry, at the peak of his popularity, at the peak of, of the crowd wanting to hear him, that he got 12 guys together and said, okay, I'm, I'm, you guys need to start telling the story. I'm going to send you out. You're going to be messengers. Now we're going to, do a whole lesson on the 12 apostles next time. So save that, save the date. We won't be next Sunday because that's Mother's Day, but after Sunday we'll come back here two weeks and we'll do a whole lesson. Hopefully build a little anticipation there. If you have anybody that's interested in that kind of stuff, wanting to know the 12 apostles, what, come two weeks from now, we'll talk about the 12 apostles. It's going to be great. But what made the 12 apostles so important as messengers was that they weren't just people, but they were changed people. And there's no better way to get the message of Jesus out to another person than from a changed person. From a person who has experienced Jesus for themselves and they can now share that story with someone else. We call it a testimony. And every believer in Jesus Christ has a testimony. It's your story. It's your story about what Jesus has done for you. Have you ever thought about your testimony? Have you ever even spent time and wrote one down? Just write it down and memorize it. Get to the point to where you can tell it in two, three minutes to another person. I know I, I did that one time. I actually went online and I found a, a website that actually helped you write your testimony. It asked you questions. You typed in your answers. And at the end, it spit out a testimony. And it was actually very cool. It worked. It was like in three, you know, in three minutes. And I could, I could tell somebody that in, in three minutes. Hey, you guys all know this. You're the same as me. If you don't have it in your head, then you go down every other tangent and you start rambling about the Mona Lisa and things that are irrelevant, stuff like that, right? But, but when you have it in your head, you're able to tell the story effectively, concisely, and, and it's personal. It's from you. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ has a testimony, and they need to know it because you need to be able to tell it to other people. That was the point, one of the points of, of, of calling the 12 men to become apostles, to be messengers. He wanted them to tell their testimony to other people. So come back next week, we'll learn about them. But before we wrap up, I want to make a point to you. Jesus is still changing people today. And therefore, he's still sending people out today. He still wants you and I, as followers, to be messengers. To tell your story about Jesus Christ to other people. And that's how he wants his message. That's how he wants his method to be spread to every generation. The power 
of a personal story. It's more powerful than demons. It's more powerful than a crowd. One story can change lives. It can affect countless people in your family, your workplace, your children, in your neighborhood. It can change a culture. It can change an environment. It can change a home, a city, you name it. But we got to know our testimony. And so I'm just going to give you an assignment because you got two weeks off from me until we come back here. And my assignment is write down your testimony. Develop one. Take some time. Talk about what your need was before you met Christ. In a sentence, summarize it. What was your need? What were you in need of? Talk about what your life was like. If you were to describe your life before Christ, how would you, in a sentence, how would you say it? Then talk about how you came to know Christ. Were you invited to a special event, a church service? Did someone have a talk with you and that turned into a Bible study? And then talk about how your life is different after Christ. And those, those four little questions, if you summarize them, you could come up with a pretty effective testimony. It's you. It's your story. And then you have a tool in your hand that you can go out and fulfill Jesus' call to you, which is to be his messenger. And there will be many people who might who could who could, who will possibly who, who can be affected by that testimony, by that story. At Simi Church, that's really what we're trying to be. We're trying to be a group of people who spread the story of Jesus, our story about Jesus to other people, who share our testimony about Jesus to other people. That's who we want to be here at Simi Church. But we gotta have the tools, we gotta be prepared. And we got to know that Jesus wants every one of us individually to be a messenger for him. I told that little joke at the beginning of the old lady, and she stopped that, thief, you know, the intruder in his tracks by throwing scripture at him. You'd be surprised how many people you'll stop in their tracks by telling your story. So let's be those kind of people. Let's fulfill the call of Christ and be messengers for him. At this time, we're going to stand. We're going to close out with a final song. Appreciate all your attention. We'll see you at, uh, well, we won't be there, but uh, you'll have a great time uh, next Sunday at Canoga Park High School. Uh, Other than that, uh, God bless you. We'll see you in two weeks.